Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce my next guest on the Swim for Tribe podcast. I'd like to welcome Dr. Josie Perry. Josie is someone we met through our swimming lessons in West London, our fitness sessions at Kensington and Putney. Um, dear friends for a long time, her husband Paul coached with us for quite some time as well and met him on a British triathlon training course many years ago at Bath University. Josie's gone on from strength to strength as an athlete uh, now as a psychologist specializing in sport and offering help and advice and uh, even as much as appearing on TV quite often giving words of advice. So we welcome her to the podcast. Thank you, Josie. So so you had a change of career massively, really. So previously you were journalism and politics? Yeah, so I began in journalism. I began at CBS News in America um, as an intern uh, working when the Monica Lewinsky story broke wow. back in, I think, 2007. Um, oh, no, 1997. Really long time ago. You've lost a decade. Gosh, I've gotten so old. Um, <laughs> and so I did that alongside my master's and my PhD in uh, political communication and then moved more into the kind of corporate communication side, so creating communication campaigns, doing crisis comms for companies when things had gone wrong. And I did all of that until 2013. My goodness. And, and all the while, when did triathlon start? Do you come from a sporting background of a different discipline? When did no, I am so not sporty. <laughs> uh, so I did ballet, tap, jazz, character dance, singing, drama... Okay. Proper stage school brat until I was <laughs> about 16. Um, I was awful at all of them. I've got no natural ability in any of those areas, but I loved it. Uh, and that kept me going, but I, I was never going to make it in that world. And then at uni, I did sailing because I fancied the captain of the sailing team. <laughs> um, and then we broke up, so I had to leave the sailing club, so I did <laughs> rowing, which I loved. Um and then, oh, that's a great endurance background. Yeah, but, yeah. but I, it was never taken very seriously. <laughs> I think we probably go down in history at Brunel Uni for being the team that actually managed to break a rowing boat. <laughs> so we, we went out in the water on a day that was far too rough for novice <gasps> rowers. Oh. And we tried to turn around and one end got caught on a huge kind of ledge of concrete alongside of the Thames. And <laughs> half... So, so four of the girls went off floating one way and the other half of us were grabbing onto the boat and it was literally in two pieces. Um, and we got in a lot of trouble for that. Uh, so yeah, I was never destined to be a rower either. Uh, and then started doing like Race for Life and stuff a couple of years after uni. Um, and did the London Marathon. And after London Marathon, it was kind of a, well, what's the next step? which at the time it was really fashionable to go and do a triathlon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you joined? So, um, yeah, I signed up for London Triathlon. I actually did my first at Eton. And my first triathlon was also Chrissy Wellington's first triathlon. Um, clearly she went on to much greater things in our sport than I did. <laughs> uh, but I really loved it. Um, met my husband through it, which was lovely. Um, and so we did... 10, 12 years of kind of full-on racing, lots of GBH group stuff, lots of Ironman racing. Serpentine Tri Club. Lots of Serpentine. Yeah. Um, 
did a lot of stuff with Thames Turbo as well. Um, and actually just have really good fun yeah, doing yeah. it. Um, until 2016, I um, had IVF for our daughter, which very gratefully worked. Um, obviously, that's changed our lives a lot. Yeah. You don't really want to be out for a, a six-hour ride on a Sunday. Oh, those um, those were the days. I missed those, but yeah, no more. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. So yeah, we, we still race. Yeah. Um, probably too much because I put on a necklace one day. And my daughter looked at it and said, I like your medal, Mum. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, I realised then she sees more medals than she does jewellery. Um, <laughs> but, but she loves racing and she likes coming out in the running buggy with us. And she's excited. She's four now, so that when Parkrun starts up again, oh. she's old enough to go to junior Parkrun, which she will love. I'm excited um, for Parkrun to happen. And at least, you know, Aiden's just over a year, but... It'll be great to come and just watch and, and see it all. Very excited for that. Just be grateful for small things, anything at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, she came to her first one at, I think I went back about four weeks. And so that's what she thinks Saturday mornings are for. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, which I love. Uh, and it's it's really sad. We've had obviously had to miss that for so long. So it'll be really lovely when now she's old enough, she can do her own park. Oh, good. So, so... I met Paul, your husband, 2004, um, because I, I know for sure that was when I, I met him at Bath Uni. We were doing our first BTF training weekend workshop, and uh, he came and worked with us for quite a while and, and uh, helped us at Putney and Kensington, and you were training with us back then. So it, it's, it's nice to sort of see this come full circle and talking to you in a, with it in a slightly different perspective now. And, and so when, when did this interest in, in the mind and psychology happen? When did you sort of stop your old career and think, right, I, I, I'm interested in this and I'm going to study again? Or was it always, was it, was it the excitement of sport that brought you to it? Or was there something in the background previously? I went to Melbourne to do Melbourne Ironman in 2013. And I was working for um, a big health charity at the time who had lots of uh, gyms. So I did all my training in the nice 20 meter pools in central London. Okay. I didn't really get much chance to go and do lots of open water swimming. And so, and also Frankston, the Melbourne Ironman in Frankston is kind of March time. It certainly was then. So obviously I didn't really want to be open water swimming over winter. <laughs> but I was standing on the beach in Frankston the morning of the race. And the day before, the, the waves looked lovely. But the morning of our race, it looked horrific. And there were still YouTube videos of the waves if um, I've, I'm not brave enough to go and watch them. <laughs> it was really, really scary. And even Paul, who's a phenomenal swimmer, was nervous. A lot of the Aussies were looking really scared. And the guy on the tannoy said, you cannot control those waves. You can control how you feel about them. And it was my proper, we'll always remember it as a light bulb moment of, Oh, yeah. Oh. They've got no natural ability in sport whatsoever. Everything I've done has just been kind of determination and seeing if I could do it. That's a lovely but message. Just... Genuinely, the first time I'd gone, oh, yeah, if I used my brain a bit more, <laughs> I'd actually do all right. Um, and so I got in the water and I raced and I had my fastest Ironman time to date, um, probably ever, because I can't see me doing another one. Um <laughs> And 
it was just a real process of like, oh, okay, there's, there's more there than I'd really thought about. And um, I was having an awful time at work and I spent so much time dealing with HR stuff, running a big team. I didn't actually get to do the comp stuff that I loved oh. anyway. So I was in a real dilemma of there's got to be more to life than this. Um, and so I kind of I got, looked more and more into sports psychology, read lots about it, discovered I needed to go back to uni to do a conversion course if I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, found one at Kingston, which is close to us. So I kind of, I went for it, left the job um, and went back. I, I didn't do anywhere near the type of research I should have done to know the process. Okay. Uh, it was very much a throw my toys out the pram and I'm going off to do this. Like, <laughs> I call it my midlife crisis. Uh, so the actual process is you go and do a conversion course, then you do a year, another master's in sport and exercise psychology specifically, and then you spend two to three years in supervised practice. Um, if I'd have realised all of that up front, probably wouldn't have had the midlife crisis wow uh, that's a lot of work yeah it's a lot of work it's very expensive um but but i love what i do now i'm incredibly privileged i get to work with athletes and performers and high achievers every day um, so i absolutely love it but it was quite a big process to go through and it's it's remarkable now i mean i swam to a high level in the 90s um and never had access access to anything like anybody seems to be able to get in touch with a nutritionist, a psychologist, um, a coach. You know, uh, it's it's remarkable the rate of change, the speed with which things have happened. And and so you're you're working at all levels with UK athletics, amateur, elites, everyone. Yeah, so I've got some athletes who are training hopefully for Tokyo next year. Um, three, two, I will work with my youngest are probably 10, 11 year olds who are really struggling, usually with things like anxiety before competitions. Okay. And that, that level of anxiety is just ruining the joy they get from their sport. That's a sh okay, yeah. And then three, two, what's lovely is a lot of the techniques we use in sports psychology work in every single area of life. Ah. So a lot of the people I work with, they do sport. And that's why they thought about using a sports psychologist. But a lot of what we're working on is nothing to do with their performance in sport. So it may well be working towards getting a promotion at work or coping with specific exams that they have to do in order to deal with things or um, dealing better with really tricky situations that they've got going on in their lives. So performance psychology techniques work across the board. That's interesting because so, one of my questions to you was going to be, you know, how would you make me faster? But but often it's not just purely that. It's about improving your confidence by reducing the anxiety, or so it's sort of a secondary thing, perhaps. Uh, or or you, you please can you explain to me? So as an Iron Man, and I wanted to become faster. You know, I I know I need to learn to run better. But you know, do I have the confidence to go training? Do I have the time? Do I, you know, I, I know the running has beaten me for years. You, you can't immediately make me a better runner, but, sh but I guess there, are there coping methods to make me go and endure the training? How, how would that work perhaps? So I actually try and take you a step back from that and oh. we almost move away from the running 
And the real focus is on why you want to do a great Ironman. Because when we can tap into that why it matters to you, what's your purpose, what values are you putting into it, how does it make you feel like you, that kind of bypasses the needing to have a coach telling you what to do. Okay. Or having to use very specific methods and skills. Because you then find that motivation much more within you to go and do what is necessary. Ah. And often we haven't had to find that motivation when you start out. So your first Ironman, you might well sign up because a friend did it and they've inspired you. Yeah, that's... Um, something that's been on your bucket list and you want to do it. So when we start out, it's usually that's enough motivation. We're just really up for it and we'll do whatever it takes because we want that medal. But when you're a few years in, it's much harder to keep pushing yourself and it's... I think a 100-metre runner can push themselves pretty hard because you can, anyone can hurt themselves for 20 seconds. Right. To go and hurt yourself for 12 hours, <laughs> you've got to have a certain mindset. And that mindset is much easier to keep in place if you know why you are out there making yourself so uncomfortable. So is this, is this an, I, I saw something on social media this week, uh, a certain motivational theory you had. Is that something you specialize in or is it just something that's really applicable to sport or how, how does that fit together? I guess there are two approaches I tend to take with, well, with anyone. Um, one is very specifically around when anxiety is holding people back. And that will... Um, I use Steve Peters's approach of kind of the chimp, the idea chimp. of the chimp, and really helping people understand what is going on in their brain, why they think the way they do, which parts of your brain are in control in different situations, so that you learn how to, I call it soothe your chimp. You're literally imagining stroking it to calm it down and to stop it self-sabotaging what you want to achieve. So often we'll do that side of the work, which is very much around actually putting the good part of your brain back in charge. And then the other part of the work comes from an approach called ACT, which is acceptance and commitment theory, with the idea being that we all have things in life that scare us. We all have things that we fear and we don't want to do. But, and, and things that wind us up and annoy us and, and get us angry or worried. But we also all have values and things we hold dear to us. And when we're really aware of what those values are, we can use them to override the things we are, we're fearful of. So example I often use is, I have had a car since the age of 17, I've had my license since the age of 17. I hate driving. Okay. I will do anything not to drive. My husband, poor husband has to do almost all of it. I just hate it. And because I'm a cyclist and spend so much time riding on the roads, my, my biggest fear is that I would knock a cyclist over. And so I, I do my very best not to cycle, not cycle, sorry, not to, not to drive a car. I would always go for the cycling or walk, walking option if I can. However, I have a four-year-old. I absolutely adore her. And sometimes it's not feasible to get her to somewhere that she would love to go on public transport or walking or cycling. And so I would drive for her because it means she can do something that matters to her and she matters to me. Ah. So we can overcome those fears and anxieties when it's important enough for us to do so. And the more we focus on our values and what matters to us, the easier then it is to overcome the difficult stuff in life. It 
gives us that real momentum to do so. And the nice element of it is it's not, I've got a real thing at the moment being very anti all the kind of macho psychology stuff out there. Toughen up, get mentally strong, and crush your demons. <laughs> when we're a lot more compassionate to ourselves and actually find a way to make things more enjoyable and comfortable for ourselves, we can do the tough stuff. And so if we can really push our values and we constantly try to move towards our values and what matters, that usually gives us the momentum and the motivation to do what we need to do. That's really interesting because when I went to the US and swam, um, you know, the dual meet season was, was, was a big deal. You know, to have a winning dual meet season, it'd just be your university against another. Um, and then, you know, for the sake of the team, for the sake of the school, I would move heaven and earth and, and perform really, really well, you know, with the coach yelling, with the rest of the team on poolside. And, you know, sometimes for a big meet, you'd get the marching band come in, there'd be cheerleaders. Uh, and that excitement and the fear of, you know, not let, but then I'd come back and race at Olympic trials and it'd just be me in the big pool on my own and it just like got kind of lost and it was all for me, but it just wasn't enough to, to get excited by, which is, is crazy that it was the Olympic trials, but the difference in my swimming abilities was, was incredible. And I, I wish I'd known some of this back then. <laughs> There's a really nice theory around motivation called self-determination. And it looks at three kind of pillars you need in place in order to have that motivation to go out and do a great job in whether it's sport or life. And one of them is feeling really competent, kind of really mastering what you're trying to do. One of them is having autonomy, so a choice and a voice over what you choose to do. And I often find younger athletes struggle because their parents are pushing them to do a sport they've done well in and want to push them and want them to do well. But the, the athlete themselves doesn't feel like they've got much choice. And so they can't put themselves wholeheartedly into it. And then their fears and their anxieties override things. And the third one, which is what you mentioned there, is called a sense of belonging. When we feel like we are part of something bigger than ourselves and we feel those really great connections with people, we will go out and we will give it our all. Yeah, a, re- a relay. It's very hard to, to piss yourself. Yeah. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, moving on a little bit, uh, perhaps from your website, you, you say you, you love the idea that psychology isn't just used to help those with mental health problems uh, get better, but can be used by those already doing well to function even better. Um, you know, are we now using sport to help mental health problems? Are the two linked? Well, there's a lot of chat at the moment. Uh, and again, you've just mentioned some of the sort of the pseudo macho what's right what's wrong if i go for a run am i going to feel better granted it's going to make me healthier but again with lockdown looming you know is there something more happening i think sport and exercise is brilliant for mental health to a certain point yeah so three four hours a week of exercise and sport when it is part of, and I hate the phrase balanced lifestyle, <laughs> but when it's part Healthy of other things, yeah, it's fantastic for you. That when you've got a stressful day and you go out for a run, that feeling when you get back of putting things in perspective, having that space to think while you're out there. There's great research that scientists used to think 
when we are born, we're born with a certain amount of neurons in our brain and they gradually die as we get older. They have now found one thing that can increase the amount of neurons in your brain and that's exercise. Oh. And the area where they grow is around your hippocampus, which is where your learning and memory is based. So exercise isn't just kind of good for how we feel. It's genuinely good for our brain. It's really good for our cognitive abilities. And obviously it has fantastic physical health benefits. So I love it to a certain level. However, when we start to get really good at it or a certain sport, we can start to take it really seriously. And that means we go into the realms of training more than is probably healthy for our body. And we start to give it a huge amount of importance Mm. in our brain and our lives. And we can become, in in psychology, it's often known as monomania. (laughs) You can become absolutely driven by that sport to the exclusion of all other things. And that can help you get very good, very fast. But it also means if you get injured or your coach leaves or you finish school and there's, there's no decent team around where you're going to, you've got nothing left. If you start to plateau, suddenly the thing you think is you. So Dan the swimmer, if Dan the swimmer can't swim, what's left? And so... I find it really important, particularly kind of young adult athletes, of really helping them focus on there being more to their lives than their sport, even if that is what they want to do as a career. Yeah. Knowing there's much more so that they don't get mentally burnt out as well as physically burnt out, but that they keep kind of a real range within their self-identity. They don't meet someone new and only have swimming to talk about. They've got much more in their kind of repertoire of who they are. So that's really important. So yeah, four or five hours a week, brilliant. But when we start to take it too seriously, we get reduced identity. We can get things like eating disorders, even accidental eating disorders like Red S, where you're not doing it on purpose, but you haven't yet learned to fuel the amount of exercise that you're doing. Uh. You can get things like exercise addiction, where you're taking it so seriously um, that you've got no other coping mechanisms left and you end up with quite serious injuries. So it, it is in moderation. Moderation, I like. And if, but it, it's not easy if you've quite a competitive nature. Um, I mean, I remember I took up triathlon. You know, I'd retired from swimming. I had a couple of years. I'd been working. And then I was still, I was going to the gym to try to stay, but it wasn't enough. So triathlon was just kind of getting going, late 90s, London try gave it a go, enjoyed it. Before I knew it, training camps, new wheels, second bike, um, going off age group championships. And like, whoa, this was only meant to fill a little bit of a void from years of swimming. But suddenly there were shiny bikes and this race and that race and going overseas. It was amazing. It's, it's not easy to, sorry. The triathlon culture is not good for that because it absolutely <laughs> encourages the you just need one more bike. Of course you need this. <laughs> Absolutely, there's 10 different triathlon training camps you can go on. It's all about doing more, more, more. Yeah. And I think people are starting to realise it's not. But you have to be very diligent not to let yourself get sucked into it. Mm. And I remember going on a training camp years ago where the coach, I mean, a phenomenal coach running it, 
but he wanted us to leave a urine sample outside his hut every morning <gasps> so that he could test whether we were dehydrated or not. And I understood the theory that obviously trying to keep us all healthy while we were out there, it was a hot environment. But to me, that felt like it crossed the line into trying to be too professional, too serious. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't me and that wasn't how I ever wanted my triathlon to be. Um, And that was before I knew about psychology. It just really struck me that actually this is too much. And being forced to have a siesta every afternoon, that's too much. And I don't want triathlon to be in my life like that. Um, So I was probably a very difficult client on that trip. And, and that's, uh, again, without being a psychologist, but that's often a warning, isn't it, uh, at big events. You go to the World Age Group Champs, for instance, for the first time, and you're trying to rest, and you know you've done the work, and you've prepared, but you keep looking out the window, and, and it's so stressful to see people running by, biking by, and you think, oh, could I just do a little bit more? Could I? Trying to shut that out, my goodness. I remember that being a real stressful time, and, and an Ironman is the same thing. You know, there's, there's, when you bring two, 3,000 people to a small town, you, you're always going to see someone out there, but you've got to step back, haven't you, surely? Yes, definitely. Um, you need a really strong coach, actually, as well, to really remind you of the training you've done and what you've put in. So I really like people to keep training diaries. Ah, yes. Because that's a really good tool when you get to that point where six people in their compression tights have just jogged past your window <laughs> and you're like, oh, I've not done enough. You can look back through your training diary. And go, Actually, I did a phenomenal session and I did that. And that race I did in the build-up, that went really well. So training diaries are great. And I really like confidence jars. So I will often send my athletes a little jar and lots of stars. And on the back of each star, they write reasons to be confident setbacks that they've overcome strengths that they have compliments they've been given by people they respect in their sport and every time they have an amazing session that they feel boost them they put yet another star in their jar and they'll send me photos from around the world when they've gone off to competitions with their little jars sitting on their bedside table in a hotel room brilliant brilliant because the process of writing it down and looking for those positives means it sticks in your head much better anyway so most of the time you don't even need to open your jar and read it you know what's in there but having a really physical reminder of the cool stuff you've done and how strong you are and the prep you've put into it is a really nice confidence booster what um what are your views i mean literally looking out the window on uh, of your hotel and seeing hundreds of people it's maybe it's a modern day problem, but what are your views on social media and, and overtraining? And I, I know you've got you've got some opinions, surely. Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, my research that I did for my my um, qualifications, final qualification to be a sports psych, looked at those who've got a risk of exercise addiction and how they use social media and trackers. And we found that if you are using things like Strava. You are much. You will have a much higher risk of exercise addiction, and social media doesn't help in that way at all. Every time you look on Instagram and there's somebody else looking horrifically fit and showing all the training they've just been doing and then weightlifting in the gym, mm. it gives that real comparison of they're doing more than me, they're fitter than me, and we have some biases in our 
built into our brains that really don't help. So all it takes is for me to see two or three videos of somebody looking very fit, and I've instantly elevated them in my brain to how much better they are than me. What we don't know is that might have only been the two or three times they've been to the gym in the last three months. Yeah. Yeah. But there is this impression management that we all do, and I've had people admit to me they've done a really, really hard bike session, and they'll put it on Strava as easy cooldown. And they absolutely know that 300 watts wasn't an easy cool down. Um, but they're doing that impression management. And so something I will often work on with people, we call media literacy. So really trying to understand what you do see and how realistic that is. So it might be you find somebody you know really well and you'll look at their Twitter and their Instagram accounts and see where the discrepancies might be between what's really going on in their life and what they're showing. And that just helps you be a bit more cynical yeah. about everything you see. So, I don't know who it was, but somebody set up a, a kind of a, 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 an amusing Twitter account and they would Monday morning trawl through various triathletes' Twitter feeds and there's a lot of... I, triathlons are a, a long event and an awful lot can go wrong. But they were kind of sort of, you know, making fun of the amount of excuses and things that went wrong. And, and it, it, it was quite a lighthearted. Some people took it quite seriously and were a little bit upset. And, you know, like, and, and just simple little things to keep you a little bit lighthearted. Like, oh, you know, I, I, I punctured and, uh, you know, and, and that ruined the race. Look, why didn't you carry a spare? Oh, you know, because the extra watts and the drag and the resistance. Um, social media is a funny thing, isn't it? It is fascinating. It can be very helpful. Um, and that, that sense of belonging we talked about earlier, if you're quite isolated, and certainly if we're about to go into another lockdown, and you can't go to your club, and you can't go yeah. to your gym, and you can't go riding with people in the same way, and certainly don't have a pool to go to, actually having ways to still connect with your tribe is really important. And so feeling part of something bigger and feeling like you've got people to engage with can be really good. So I'm on a group, a Facebook group um, run by Jenny Mellick, actually. Who oh, it's um, 30 runs in 30 days. And it's for November. And it's about three, 400 people who are all planning to do, it doesn't have to be a run, but some kind of exercise every yeah. day for November. And I already know that is one of the things that's going to get me through the next four weeks of having that push to go and do it and seeing what everybody else has been doing and seeing the photos come up of cool places that people have run and really feeling like I can join in. And so we can use it for real good stuff. So Absolutely a, brilliant for that. A little accountability, a little bit of commitment to the group. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, just knowing you're not on your own and actually almost that, while you're out for that run in torrential rain with your feet already fully soaked, um, <laughs> thinking, why on earth am I doing this? It's 11.30 at night and I knew I was going to have to do it late. But you're almost planning the, well, what do I put up when I do this? Who's inspired me today? It really brings that, more than accountability, but that real feeling of we're all in it together. Uh, and it can be, that can be really powerful. To the extent that there's some clubs even called, you know, tribes now. It's almost like that word's replacing club now to give that extra little bit of emphasis, which is quite nice. 
Yeah, as Troy long... or um, Cruz, the other one I see quite a bit of. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's the, and, and that's almost against the, we don't want to be part of a club. Clubs <laughs> sounds very formal. But we're a gang. We're, we gang. do it together. We're a great group. What, um, just, we talked briefly about Dan the swimmer. Let's go back to some swimming. Um, have you been following the recent cold water discussions and the, the whole phenomenon that is cold water that's solving so many things? What are your views on cold water swimming? So I avoid it entirely because I hate being <laughs> me, cold. Me too, me too. I... <laughs> like, somebody suggested today and I was like, no, not in a million years. Why would you do that to It's nearly November. <laughs> I know. So um, I, I was proud enough. I did, I managed two triathlons this year and one of them was at Heaver Castle. And That's pretty place for a They said to us right at the beginning, that it was about 6am and they said, theoretically you should not be swimming so it's 12 <laughs> degrees in the water and six degrees in the air so we're not really supposed to give you a swim however you guys have all had an awful year you can do it if you want if you don't want to do it you can just start on the bike and we'll give you a medal anyway it was a really lovely approach yeah every single person swam oh. which i thought was amazing i thought as soon as one person doesn't others won't but everybody swam and I was actually, I had a horrific race. But I was so proud of the fact I got in the water and swam. So I think that feeling that you're putting yourself through something really uncomfortable and you do it can give you a real buzz and can help promote your overall well-being. And I'm quite sure there's some great scientific evidence about how good it is for you. But I'm not up for It'll be, that when there's it, a nice swimming pool I could get into instead. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes of the recent dementia theories and, and research. I mean, I I got ready for a cross-channel relay a few years ago and, you know, I had the baths with the ice cubes and sleeping with the window open and only a thin sheet and, and it, it, it wasn't for me. But I do remember getting out of the cold shower once and having that glow and thinking, oh, I think this is what they're all talking about and... You know, I've, we were at the London, we were at Excel in February. It must have been maybe the bike show, not the, couldn't have been the try, it was too cold, but they'd filled up the big tank and I think the guys thought it was for like the boat show because they didn't turn on any heaters. So I was doing demonstrations in this big tank at like seven, eight degrees with two wetsuits on and absolutely shivering and hot chocolate was flying. Um, but it's, it's a remarkable thing. People... People just get used to it, and they and. I used to swim in the Serpentine Lake when we lived um, very close to High Park, and I would rock up with my wetsuit on and like hide outside putting it on because the old timers just look at you horrifyingly. <laughs> yeah. Ruin this spiritual experience in the morning by wearing a wetsuit, um, and they all clearly they've been doing it for years and years, and they got a huge amount out of it. Oh. Um, I'm, I like to take the easy route if possible. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's plenty of options. You keep that to one side. I, I, I'll enjoy a nice, you know, Lake Garda, um, Cancun. You name it. Um, that, that's, that's more my style. Um, so I won't keep you more than our designated time. Uh, I really appreciate those valuable insights. You know, as lockdowns approaching, keep the training sensible. Don't use it. I mean, again, I spoke to some physios back in when we first started this and they were nervous that people would do too much, take the, take the opportunity to like get super fit, but actually the worry of injuries. And I guess we need to be a little bit careful with 
doing too much, as you say, and possibly getting yeah. addicted, worries about other influences and other factors? What worries me, I guess, is that we are all used to having races to train for, and those races become a really good goal, and you have them in mind, and so you train sensibly because you want the very best performance at the end of that process. And suddenly we, we don't have races, or we, we might have them in a diary, but they've been postponed twice, and we don't want to enter things because we've got no idea if they're going to happen mm. or not. And so for, for most of us, our goals have entirely changed. And there are different goals that you can have, but some of those will be about how much you do. And so that can then cause another problem, that it might be, I want to do 2021 kilometers run or swam or cycled in 2021 and so people will pick up on really cute goals like that but actually that ends up means you're overtraining mm-hmm. um, and we don't have if we've got a, a proper lockdown you don't have physios you don't have sports massage that you can go and yeah. see so easily good point you won't be at a running group or in your uh, your swim training where you've got a coach that can see when some something might be wrong you won't have people to have those chats to in the same way that can point out if you're pushing it too far. So one of the phrases I really liked during the first lockdown was we're all in the, the same storm, but we're all in very different boats. And I thought that summed it up really well because people are in very different situations. Yes. Some people might not be working at the moment and might not have children at home. And so actually they've got a huge amount of time to train and they've got lots of time to recover properly and to really look after their bodies and so it doesn't matter so much if they go out and do loads. Other people might be homeschooling children and trying to work on top of it and trying to keep vaguely healthy and keep in touch with elderly parents that might not be doing so well Mm. and then trying to train properly on top of that. Even a percentage of what you used to do easily push you into burnout and so it's what I find really helpful to remind athletes of is that your body doesn't distinguish between different types of fatigue Ah. and if you're someone that does certainly things like triathlon you're often what we call type a personality you're often very used to doing well you might well have perfectionistic tendencies your you see success is driving yourself harder and harder But if you're doing that in all areas of your life, your brain doesn't distinguish that, oh, that's okay because that's the box for work and that's the fatigue box for sport and that's the fatigue box for trying to be a brilliant parent. It all just gets thrown into one and we cannot do everything. And there's another lovely phrase of you can do anything, but you cannot do everything. And I think that's really worth remembering if we do go into another lockdown or things kind of continue with this ambiguity for so long is actually just just do what you can but don't try and do everything don't try and be some superhuman don't worry if you haven't baked banana bread and got a sourdough loaf in the oven and you haven't run a marathon around your back garden I think for anyone that just comes out of 2020 still talking to their friends and family still feeling in an okay place is doing really really well that's amazing. Gosh, yeah. Keep keep it simple and just be happy with some of those. Other, this isn't the year 
some people have done amazing things this year and they've had the the background the environment in place to do that and that's fantastic it kind of gives us all a boost when you get to see someone doing something brilliant yeah but comparing yourself to that if you're in a very different boat is purely a way of making yourself really miserable same storm. And we don't need any more misery. We need some fun, happy stuff. <laughs> same storm, different boats. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Dr. Perry, I appreciate your time. Josie, uh, as we know you from swimming from all those years, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I'll get this posted as soon as I have a little just check through it. Uh, links to you, email, you're accepting clients at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Always um, it's speak to new people fantastic i will share this on social media the good healthy social media i won't drive it down <laughs> everyone's throats hundreds of times but um best of luck and in we'll chat again soon that was really helpful thank you so much uh, thank you